Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here again with John Mitchell for our 12th edition of this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about something that was actually pitched to us by a regular listener, talking about Jim Delaney retiring on New Year's Day 2020, and really getting into a discussion about the influence of conference commissioners in conference football, especially since, you know, roughly the early 90s, when you started to see the Bull Coalition and the Bull Alliance and then the BCS step into place. Then we're going to be talking a bit further about uh, some Heisman talk, getting ourselves into the swing of things for the start of uh, previewing the 2019 season. And then finally, we're going to get a little bit into our uh, favorite uniforms, you know, not just the teams that we actually love, but just some some fun uniforms, both classic and more contemporary that that we seem to find uh, amusing and, you know, really kind of timeless. So, how are you doing this week, John? I'm doing well. Just another week closer to the season. I'm excited to actually talk about some, you know, more close to the season kind of talk. You know, I know we got some previews and stuff of the actual season coming up. Um, so, everything's kind of getting in gear. Excited to be back here with you again for what I can't believe is our 12th edition of this podcast already. So, thanks to everyone who's been listening every week. It's been a fun ride for both of us. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's nice to have... Uh seen some regular listeners, you know, kind of step forward and offer a few suggestions. I'm really excited to tackle this first topic we have, especially today. Um, shout out to Greg in the St. Louis area for uh, pitching this to us, because I think it's a really, you know, sort of timely topic with Jim Delaney um, announcing his retirement after one final season at the head of the Big Ten. And, um, you know, generally... You know, Delaney has had a really big influence, not just in the Big Ten, but more broadly in college football. He was one of the, the you know, figureheads that brought forward the BCS into existence. Um, obviously, the big problems with the Bull Alliance and the Bull Coalition before it were the fact that the Rose Bowl was outside of the mix and the, you know, the Pac-10 at the time and the Big Ten were both outside of that that round. And so you still had the opportunity for split national championships like you had in 1997. Um, so, you know, he really brought that forward. But he was also a stalwart for conference expansion, bringing in Penn State in 1990 to make the Big Ten the Big 11. And, uh, you know, then bringing in Nebraska later to start up a conference championship game and really waiting for the right time and waiting for, you know, he really seemed to have a knack for for the right time to pull the trigger on different ideas. I might personally say he was a couple of years too late on doing some of these things. And frankly, in his, you know, efforts in engineering the BCS, he was also a big part of making sure the Big Ten had an outsized influence in it. That was his job as a conference commissioner, obviously. So, you know, I kind of just wanted to throw this out to you, John. Um, What do you think has, you know, do you think conference commissioners have become, you know, more powerful over, over the past quarter century or so? I think there's 
no doubt in that, Zach. I think probably if you look past, you know, in the past uh, 30 years or so before that even, it's hard to really pinpoint, and most common college football fans aren't going to know names of conference commissioners, but I'm guessing most even casual college football fans today know who Jim Delaney is or have at least heard his name yeah. because of, like you said, the influence he had in the um, conference expansion. And then, you know, you remember a few years ago when all this was going on, we thought super conferences is where we were really heading. We were heading towards probably four 16 team super conferences that still, you know, still could happen on the horizon. It just hasn't happened yet. It kind of stalled uh, from where it was. But I think that probably started the rise of the power of the commissioner, maybe even back in the nineties, back when Roy Kramer was the commissioner of the sec and, you know, pioneered the SEC championship game, uh, was the inaugural one of that was Alabama versus Florida. And it was really a controversial game, if you look back at that contest, because Alabama was undefeated, Florida was not, and had Florida pulled out the upset, what ended up being a very, very close football game. Antonio Langham had a pick six late in the fourth quarter to seal the deal for Alabama. Could have just been a disastrous turn for Kramer and the SEC because they would have lost out on you know Alabama playing for the national title that season. Yeah. So I think probably dating back to around then, <coughs> kind of seen that you get you know the Jim Delaney's, the the Mike Slides, the Greg Sankey's now, and and all these people, the Larry Scotts, all these people who have really big influence. And the fact that we can name them kind of offhand, I think, speaks to the fact that their influence is way bigger than it used to be. Um, I mean, how Alabama? You think about how powerful of a figure Nick Saban is at not just Alabama but across college football and he had interest in bringing in Hugh Freeze as an offensive coordinator uh this past year or an offensive analyst on offensive coordinator excuse me and Greg Sankey flat out told him no and that's not something you would normally see you know if you look back 30 years ago imagine the SEC commissioner in the 70s or 80s telling Bear Bryant no you can't do this like that's not how that would have worked so I think there's countless examples of that obviously you know, Jim Delaney's had a, a massive impact on not just the Big Ten, but present-day college football as a whole. He probably regrets the whole Rutgers thing, but, you know, with the with the growing craze of um, expanding conferences, kind of had to grab somebody, I guess. But, yeah, that's where I think, what do you – do you agree with that kind of sentiment about commissioners? Or, or? Oh, oh, definitely. You know, I think – it really comes down to Georgia and Oklahoma winning the court case against the NCAA in 1982 and the opportunity. It was 82 or 83. I, I, I don't have the exact date in front of me, so I'm not going to quote that as gospel. So don't quote the date on me. But, you know, it was Georgia and Oklahoma that were the, the spearhead in that court case. And it basically opened the doors to conferences getting to negotiate uh, TV contracts themselves. And that really just exploded everything. Like you mentioned with Roy Kramer being a, you know, really influential guy, both in terms of the, the different iterations that led up to the BCS, as well as the introduction of conference championship games and, you know, sort of spearheading that direction of, um, you know, conference expansion as well. I, I think he's a great name that, that just sort of, you know, speaks to the influence of the commissioner at this point. What I thought was really funny, though, is I was kind of, you know, before this podcast, before we recorded, I decided to look up some of the commissioners who were on board at the time of Delaney's arrival and who has kind of cycled through the major conferences since he, 
you know, came on board um, up to today. And Roy Kramer actually did not start as the SEC commissioner until 1990, the year after Delaney started. So um, it's just really interesting to see just how long lived his influence has been. Um, you know, the nearest corollary was Tom Hansen at the Pac-10 slash Pac. You know, it was the Pac-10 his entire time there. He ended up ceding the ground to Larry Scott in uh, 09, uh, 2009. And it, it's the same sort of thing. I think you really get a person in there who sees the influence that TV contracts are going to have. And it just, you get it, like there were few minds that were shrewder than, than Jim Delaney in that. And, you know, you look at the fact that, you know, the big 10 is consistently at the top of revenue sharing among conferences when it comes to what they're getting in TV deals. Um, you know, in the past couple of years, they've paid out more than $50 million per year to each school in TV rights. And that really just serves as a huge, huge fuel and, uh, you know, the next negotiation is coming up in 2022 or after the 2022-23 season. And it's going to be interesting to see how that goes with uh, Kevin Warren taking over the role on January 2nd, 2020. He has a couple of years to get his, you know, legs underneath him in serving as the conference commissioner. But it won't be too long after that that he's negotiating the next deal. And, you know, what Delaney did better than most was make sure that he didn't lock the conference into something too long because he, he saw that things were continuing to go up. And even in an age of cord cutters and um, more a la carte options, we're still seeing more, you know, like these deals aren't getting smaller. It's not happening. The bubble is coming I'd be shocked to see it being anywhere near bursting. And it really speaks to the influence of the commissioners in negotiating these rights and getting, you know, even just getting teams on board to collectively pool these rights is a huge thing because each school could very much want to pull a order name and sell them all for themselves. Right. No, absolutely. And, it's going to be, it's kind of amazing how Delaney was such a, a big proponent of, you know, the TV revenue and everything, but he was also one of the main opposers to the college football playoff when that actually came about. He was a huge um, dissenter uh, when that whole conversation started happening. We were talking about moving away from the BCS and everything. It's kind of incredible that he didn't see, have the foresight, you know, to see what was ahead in terms of TV dollars and stuff with that. And it's funny too, because, you know, Ohio state, a big 10 team ended up winning the first college football playoff as a four seed. Yeah. So I think that's pretty funny too, because, you know, they would have never had the opportunity to play uh, for a national title that year. I believe it ended up being, uh, was it, was Oregon number two that year? Was it two versus four? Yeah, it was, it, four? it was two remember. versus four because Florida state yeah, so had been pushed down as an undefeated team to yeah. number three. And people so would have had won. Alabama, Oregon, BCS title game that year, and Ohio State would have been in the Rose Bowl, which you know is great, but they wouldn't have had a shot to win a national title. So yeah, exactly. uh, I think that's kind of kind of amazing. I think the the new commissioner too is stepping into a pretty good situation, particularly if you know Ryan Day can get Ohio State uh, main to maintain what they were under Urban Meyer, and if Scott Frost keeps building Nebraska 
and Nebraska can become the team that, you know, Jim Delaney hoped Nebraska would be when they got them to join the Big Ten, you know, really hoping that the blue blood would revive and come about again. So it really could be interesting times for the Big Ten. Um, but, yeah, I, I think college uh, commissioners in college football and each conference have um, a lot more power nowadays. And I wonder, Zach, if we're going to be heading towards actually having a college football commissioner down the line, someone who actually runs and is in charge of the full sport. Uh, probably not the worst idea. Well, and I think that's always been the push that the big conferences have tried to do when they pool their resources and create something like the the BCS or the college football playoff. You know, I, I think what we're speaking about is the need for that to exist across all, all levels of the sport and somebody who has the best interests of the sport at every one of its levels in mind. And, um, you know, what's created out of, you know, these conferences really sort of joining together and creating the structures, whatever they look like for a playoff or a quasi-definitive national championship is um, really still ignoring a lot of those teams that are on the outside, not just the group of five, but also FCS teams, Division Two and Division Three teams. And I, I, I think the health of the sport really depends on looking at all of that. So I'd really welcome having somebody who's just in position to do that because the NCAA obviously... It is what it is, and it's not going away anytime soon, especially because of what they do with the basketball tournament. That's their fuel. It's certainly not college football because, you know, the big the powerhouses have insulated themselves, thanks to people like Jim Delaney, from, you know, any real influence from the NCAA. We've looked at the recent cases around, you know, Grant Nate. We've talked about it you know, earlier in the series in this podcast, looking at Grant and Nade and the court case that effectively took control out of that, out of the NCAA's hands and put it in the conference's hands. So there's just another place where commissioners are going to continue to have more influence. So, I, I you know, I, I, I think it's really kind of fascinating how it's just kind of swept up so quickly that they've They've swooped in and gained this sort of power. Um, if I may for a moment, I'm just going to take a little bit of an interjection here. I, You know, like I said, I looked at the list of commissioners who were in place when Delaney started his job in 1989. And, you know, you had Dave Gavitt still leading the Big East. And it wasn't even a football conference at the time. You know, that didn't happen until the early 90s when they started bringing the Miamis and the Virginia Techs of the world into the fold. And uh, and coincidentally, the Rutgers of the world, as we talked about. And, you know, for a time there, Rutgers actually wasn't that bad of a team at all. So, right. um, but yeah, Dave Gavitt was leading a basketball, you know, non-football Big East uh, Carl James was leading the Big Eight. I'm, I'm sure we all remember and love Carl James. Um, Fred Jacoby was leading the Southwest Conference, so you didn't even have, you know, the Big 12 at the time. That didn't come until further down the line, seven years after Delaney comes into his job. 
So, and then Harvey Schiller is still leading the SEC during Delaney's first year on the job. That's Schiller's last year before Kramer steps in and really sort of revolutionizes what a, what a commissioner looks like. And I, I think really, you know, bringing up his name is good because Kramer does definitely step in and really take that, take charge of that role and really embrace it. And I think in a lot of ways, Delaney um, stayed more understated in what a commissioner could look like. He never got nearly as out in front of the cameras. Um, but his influence is still obviously felt and was certainly in the creation of the BCS because the Big Ten was that last sort of, you know, linchpin that had to fit into the puzzle to make it all work. So, uh, you know, like, and then uh, Gene Corrigan was leading the ACC uh, before John Swafford came on in 97. So we don't remember any of these names. I mean, two of those conferences are defunct now. And honestly, the Big East is as well. Because, we, you know, you look at it and, uh, you know, Mike Oresco stayed on when it transitioned from the Big East to the American Athletic Conference. But it really... It, it really speaks to the fact that commissioners have become more household names. They have really inserted themselves more clearly into the conversation. And then also, you know, another big part of that is with expansion is the fact that we have fewer independent teams. Back then, commissioners had less sway because, you know, the Penn States of the world, the, you know... All, all of these independent teams were still independent. Florida State was still independent. Miami was still an independent. Virginia Tech was still an independent. And you look at all these different programs across the country that weren't affiliated with a conference, and it wasn't until commissioners started gaining more traction in you know, showing the value of what it meant to pool negotiating power for TV deals that they finally gave up independence and got into the mix of, um, you know, either finding their space in a power conference or losing out on that, that sort of game of musical chairs. Right. It's kind of amazing how different the college football landscape is now, 30 years later from when Jim Delaney first started as the commissioner of the big 10 to when he's going to be stepping away from it. Like you just said, all the, all the changes and not just conference realignment and stuff like that, but the fact that some of those conferences don't even exist anymore. You know, there's no big eight, there's no big East or anything like that. There's no transitions into Right. Right. Exactly. Even some of the smaller uh, conferences and everything. So definitely a, a massive influence. He'll be a name that I'm sure most college football fans from today will remember, uh, will remember forever before his influence is not just uh, in the big 10, but in the national landscape as well. Oh, I totally agree. Um, yeah, his power is going to be felt long after this retirement. And, uh, you know, it kind of also, now John Swafford in the ACC becomes the, uh, the old bard of the, the conference commissioners among the Power Five. And he started up in 97. He's the only one that started his job, um, you know, in the 20th century. So... Um, we're really kind of continuing to see this changing of the guard. And, uh, 
given how much power that conference commissioners have carved out now, it's really going to be, I don't know if the right word is fun, but definitely fascinating to see what these conference, this next generation of commissioners does with that ground that's been carved out and where they push those boundaries further. Yeah. And what does college football look like 30 years from now? And, you know, that same period of time elapses from Delaney's tenure. I think it'll be a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, I'm sure I'll have something to write about it. Hopefully, you know, when I have tenure somewhere. But on that note, um, I think we're going to take a quick break, everybody. And then uh, when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of Heisman talk. So be sure to stick with us and stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody. I'm Zach McGalkey here with John Mitchell on the Saturday Blitz podcast. Now we're going to be talking about Heisman, the Heisman Trophy, the Heisman race here coming up in 2019, and uh, really uh, looking at some dark horse picks, some people kind of under the radar in the race, then making our own predictions about this. Um, This is the beginning of a series where every week we're going to be looking at some facet of the game leading up to the start of the 2019 season in honor of the 150th anniversary of college football. So, um, you know, I I think the first big thing here is we wanted to look at some dark horse picks and and some teams that are under the radar, or some, not some teams, excuse me, some players who are under the radar. Um, Do you have any players that really kind of flash out at you that, you know, aren't really being spoken about much, John? I think the first guy that came to mind is a guy we've talked about on this podcast in the past, and we were kind of looking at maybe some dark horse national championship picks, and that would be Khalil Tate in mm-hmm. Arizona. Um, he come in the last season, he was on everyone's Heisman radar after having just a spectacular season uh, as a sophomore, and then uh, with the coaching transition and Kevin Sumlin came in, everyone really anticipated that being a really clean fit, and, you know, obviously Sumlin – had already coached the Heisman Trophy winner at Texas A&M with Johnny Manziel. So I think, you know, Tate had injuries last year. The ankle injury kind of hampered him for most of the year. Arizona really fell off and went, I believe, 5-7 and seven last year. Um, I anticipate them really taking a step forward uh, in 2019, and a big reason for that would be Tate. I don't think they're going to contend for a national championship, which is typically what it takes for, you know, someone to win the Heisman Trophy. You usually see a team that's in the playoff for a team that's really close to that. But, you know, we have seen in the past a guy like Lamar Jackson who put up gaudy statistics on a nine-win Louisville team win the Heisman, or even back in 2007 when Tim Tebow won the Heisman in Florida only won nine games. So if Arizona could, you know, pull out eight, nine wins next year, he throws for 3,500 to 4,000 yards, rushes for 1,000 or so more, he's probably going to be right in the thick of it, particularly if Arizona can really compete in the Pac-12 South and potentially even steal that division away. I think he's probably the guy that pops into my head uh, right away because I think people are sleeping on how talented of a football player this kid is. And just because, you know, he had the injury-riddled season last year and everything didn't really fall into place, I think he's got a great shot at having a fantastic season in 2019 and potentially being the dark horse candidate for the Heisman. Yeah, I totally agree on Tate. I, I, he was one I definitely had jotted down in my notes uh, coming into to our recording today. And I, 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 for exactly the reason you talk about, you know, he is an electric player and the Heisman has never necessarily been guaranteed around what 
a player's team has done. Like, it really has gone toward an individual player. We can even look at Robert Griffin III winning the Heisman at Baylor. I think that's another great example of a player really sort of transcending what their team did as a whole. And, you know, the Heisman Committee recognizing that a nine-win Baylor team or a, you know, a nine-win Arizona team is equivalent to a running the table at a place like Alabama or Clemson. You've elevated what would otherwise have been a team fighting just to become bowl eligible to contending for conference or, you know, at least division championships and being in that discussion for a conference championship. So I think that's a really great choice. Um, one, you know, another one that stood out to me is I think we really often look at quarterbacks, especially when we're looking at dark horses. It's like, who's the quarterback on the team that's going to jump out? Because the quarterback obviously is what speaks to Heisman voters the most. Um, I forget, I wrote a column last year looking at this that I, I think it was 19 of the past 35 Heisman winners were were quarterbacks, and I think it's now 21 of, you know, 38 or 39, whatever that was. So it's obviously something where that's the first place to look. But looking, you know, across the state at Arizona's rival, I think Eno Benjamin, if any running back, is going to have some kind of of chance to get into the discussion. It's going to be him, especially if he takes what's, going to be a less experienced Arizona State team this year and you know kind of put him on his back and have a have a breakout like really huge season leading up to his draft year I I think he could be somebody who you know at least in terms of running backs could could really kind of punch his ticket in and put his name at least into being in that that last final you know cut to get to Manhattan, so. Yeah, with, you know, with Nikhil Harry gone, with a less experienced quarterback now, with Manny Wilkins gone, I think Herm Edwards is going to be leaning pretty heavily on, you know, Benjamin, so he's definitely got the potential to have a big year, and that's a wide-open race in that division, too, so if he can carry Arizona State towards, and then it's a one-game season at that point, if they bust into the Pac-12 championship games, they could easily, you know, maybe flat an upset over an Oregon or a Washington or whoever, Stanford, whoever ends up playing them. And then you got a, you're talking about a Rose Bowl bid for an Arizona or an Arizona State. And if yeah. that happens, it'd be really hard to ignore a guy like, you know, Benjamin Moore, a guy like Khalil Tate, whichever is really leading their team uh, to that. So I think that's an interesting one. Speaking of running backs, I had another guy that I think is interesting because the, the talk, I guess, in the offseason so far has been about his teammate uh, at quarterback, but uh, a running back who's coming off a fresh season they ran for over a thousand yards going to be a part of a kind of ridiculously loaded backfield and what could be a really potent rushing game that's kennedy brooks at oklahoma mm-hmm. um all the talk really about <laughs> Jalen hurts and if oklahoma succeeds and everything like that it'll probably be because of hurts and he'll you know have the gaudy statistics as a passer and a runner and that's probably the case but i also wouldn't doubt that kennedy brooks is a guy who could run for you know, 1,800 or so plus yards next season. And if Oklahoma pushes forward and if Hurts hasn't developed as a passer the way that they, that Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley are obviously hoping he has, and they lean on Brooks, then he could be a guy who really makes a push up the Heisman radar. And it wouldn't be the first time we've seen a pair of teammates uh, potentially finish in the top five in the Heisman voting either. You know, 
we've seen that plenty of times in the past, whether that was, you know, Matt Leinert and Reggie Bush yeah. at USC or whoever, you know, really teammate-wise getting the accolades and everything. So Kennedy Brooks had just a spectacular freshman season, and Norman was overshadowed by the fact that he was playing alongside Kyler Murray, who did end up winning the Heisman Trophy. But it wouldn't surprise me if Oklahoma was able to pull out three straight Heisman whenever, if it's potentially a guy like Brooks instead of Jalen Hurts. That would be a really fascinating uh, sort of swoop in because, yeah, I completely agree. Much of the discussion there is around around Hurts, who, you know, currently on the the Vegas odds is looking at something around a six to one, you know, among the favorites to to actually pull it off. And I think that really speaks to Lincoln Riley's track record in his first two years as a head coach, just sort of immediately having two Heisman winners. It, it, it's a really interesting legacy, and it it sets in a really interesting bar to have to live up to. Um, so I, if Oklahoma does do it a third year, it, it, whatever Lincoln Riley is doing and whatever they're putting in the water in Norman, uh, keep it up. <laughs> obviously. Right. So, um, you know, and then I think, I think one, like, obviously I follow the group of five a lot and people are looking a lot at UCF and we've never heard much traction around there, but I I think one that could be really interesting as well is Derek King at Houston, especially with Dana Holgerson taking over. Um, you know, if he picks up what, you know, if he and Holgerson really connect quickly, and I don't have much of a feel on what they did in terms of, you know, spring and everything around that. I just haven't heard much buzz one way or the other. Um, but I, I think if they really develop synergy quickly, it's going to be uh, a real potential to have a huge breakout season as a group of five quarterback for King. So, if anybody's going to do it, I think it won't actually be like a Brandon Wimbush. I think it's going to be it's going to be King at Houston, and I think a big part of that will be swooping in and stealing the conference from UCF. So if he does pull off something like that, you're really going to see him get that sort of Jordan Lynch treatment and put them into the discussion. Especially because if they pull it off, he's going to have to have a spectacular season because Houston's defense is probably going to be even worse than it was a year ago, particularly after losing Ed Oliver. Oh, God, yeah. I know he missed a lot of games last season, but you know he also played in eight of them, so it's not like he was gone the whole year. And Houston's no. defense struggled for most of the year anyway. Yeah. And obviously the Holgerson and Derek King combo really has fans um, there really excited, as they should be, because Holgerson probably will pull the best out of King, and I think he will have a really big season. And, you know, maybe if he goes and they go head-to-head against Central Florida or whatever, and he's able to pull out a big win with a huge game, maybe that's enough to really vault him towards the towards the, uh, towards New York for the Heisman ceremony. So I think that's another interesting choice um, for sure. Um, you mentioned Brandon Wimbush as well. Even Dariel Mack, if he's the guy who wins yeah. the starting job at Central Florida, I don't believe that race has been decided. No. Uh, I actually think his um, – odds are even better than Wimbush because I think we kind of know what Wimbush can do and I don't know if he's as much of a factor uh, as a dual threat as Mac is and if Mac can develop as a passer. I mean, he played really well at the end of last season. I mean, they, you know, he led them to the American title. They beat Memphis in the championship game and then, I mean, I thought he played pretty well against a really good LSU defense in the Fiesta Bowl even. 
So, you know, whoever it is there is going to have the spotlight to kind of advance up for sure. Yeah. Another one that was on my mind, not on the, you know, non-AQ side of things, I guess, but I was thinking if UCLA can really take a step and Chip Kelly's second season there, maybe they can vault up. Maybe Joshua Kelly Yeah. at running back, because you know, obviously, in a Chip Kelly offense, the running back's going to get a lot of carries. Uh, we've seen that plenty of times in the past with a guy like LaMichael James, who was a Heisman finalist yeah. uh, himself at Oregon. So, if you know, if UCLA is able to maybe themselves jump up and, and steal the division in the Pac-12 and maybe play for a Pac-12 title game, uh, which is probably not going to happen because the talent there still really isn't there. But, you know, if they do and Kelly throws down a 1,800 to 2,000-yard season or something like that, it'd be kind of hard to ignore him as well. And he's going to get the touches almost certainly to uh, have the ability to really show out. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think uh, Joshua Kelly is a really great choice, um, especially because I think he really is the, the going to be the catalyst for, for Chip Kelly's offense. Um, you know, I think Dorian Thompson-Robinson is a, a, a decent enough quarterback. I think he can serve in that sort of role that, that somebody like a Darren Thomas or a Jeremiah Masoli plays. But they're not quarterbacks you remember as Heisman caliber like Dixon or like uh, Mariota were for for Chip when he was still at Oregon. So, I, you know, I think if, if UCLA has somebody step up, it, it's going to be Kelly that does the stepping up out of the backfield. Um, another one I think that's interesting is, um, you know, if we're looking at non-quarterbacks and non-running backs is actually from your, uh, your rooting interest. I think Jerry Judy could have a really interesting possibility of getting in as a wide receiver. If any wide receiver is going to step up, I think he looks like somebody who could really be a, you know, a Bolitnikoff favorite and, um, step into that role. And, you know, Vegas is obviously looking at it as a possibility. Um, 30 to 1 odds. It, it's, you know, somewhere around mid-range. He, he's got the same odds as somebody like Justin Herbert, which kind of interested me in terms of seeing that. So I think it's not somebody would have, we would immediately think about. But if uh, Tua Tagovailoa is not going to, you know, win it, it's going to be... I, I think that's sort of going to eliminate Judy from the discussion, but I think you could see two in Manhattan from the Crimson Tide if they really connect to have just a transcendent season together. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, there's there's some draft prognosticators out there who have Jerry Judy listed as the number one overall prospect for the 2020 NFL draft class. And it's kind of easy to see why if you watch the film and how easy he separates from defensive backs and his, you know, top-end speed and all that, his footwork especially, a lot of comparisons to a guy like Odell Beckham Jr. uh, when he was at LSU even, and Judy's got the um, luxury that he actually has a future NFL quarterback throwing him the ball when Odell Beckham was stuck with the Jarrett Lees and the Jordan Jeffersons of the world throwing him the ball in Baton Rouge. The only issue I see with Judy, Zach, is just, there's only one football, and two is, does such a good job of spreading the ball around. And Judy was the Blitnikoff award winner last year, and I'm taking it yeah. away from that. But Alabama's just got such a gluttony of talent at the receiver position. If you look at a guy like Henry Ruggs, who is 
one of the fastest players in college football, but potential first-round pick in his own right. Devontae Smith, the hero of the national title game two years ago. Um, and then even Jalen Waddell, who was, had 850 yards as a true freshman receiver last year. And then there's a guy named a kid named John Mechie who really showed out in the spring game this year as well. So you've got so many options that I, I think it would be difficult for Judy to put up the numbers. But I do – it wouldn't surprise me if he had a monster year and kind of overshadowed all the other talented guys and really pushed up. But I like going – outside of the box, because you always think quarterbacks, and if you're not thinking quarterback for the Heisman, then obviously we're thinking running back, because it's been a while since a non-QB or running back won the award. But we've seen we've seen guys from different positions really push up, and it had me thinking when we were discussing doing this topic, what really had me thinking was, what about a defensive player? What defensive players? Do you have any defensive players that kind of come to mind for you that would have any shot whatsoever? You know, defense is always so tough. And it really takes having one of those absolutely mind-boggling seasons. And, you know, I think we've had a couple of really great defensive players that might be there in the mix um, go in the draft this year. And so I I think somebody's going to step up along the way. Um, I know this just sounds like a cop-out or whatnot, but out of who I'm looking at right now, I don't see any one player that just sort of pops at me and says they're, they're, they're going to insert themselves into this mix. Like a, you know, like an Indomitian right. Sue, somebody like that who just really just explodes and changes the narrative completely around how a defender is looked at. And right. I'm not sure who's going to do it. Did you have anybody that popped out at you? I did. I actually had two, and it's funny you mentioned Indominus Sue. Another guy I was thinking of that really uh, pushed up for the Heisman was a defensive back a few years ago. Remember Tyran Matthews? Oh, yeah. Who at LSU had uh, kind of a fortuitous season because he was sometimes in the right place at the right time, caught a couple bounces, and that's really what has to happen for a defensive player. You've got you've got to get some pick sixes. You've got to get some fumble returns. For touchdowns and then you know Matthew had the had the benefit of also being LSU's punt returner and having a chance to impact the game in that way but I actually thought of another LSU player uh Grant Delpit mm. might be just you know pound for pound the best defensive player in college football period as a safety for LSU I think he had five interceptions last year so if he can bulk those numbers up a little bit maybe even house a couple of those picks maybe get a couple fumble returns or what have you Maybe he's a guy who really steps into the forefront if LSU is as good as I think they have the potential to be and maybe challenges Alabama for the SEC West throne. Um, I don't know if Joe Burrow's going to be a guy who really gets a lot of love. It might be LSU's defense carrying the torch, and if it is LSU's defense carrying the torch, it's probably going to be Grant Delpit, who's the guy that uh, really takes the, you know, the publicity and everything around it. The other guy I was thinking is kind of a physical freak at, at Iowa, A.J., Epineza, I can't really remember how you pronounce okay, his name. Yeah. I haven't. Um, but anyway, he's he was a monster last season for the Hawkeyes, a guy who had double-digit sacks last year and didn't even start. So imagine what he could do getting in there as a starter this year um, for the Hawkeyes. And Iowa's got a shot. They have a lot of talent as well and could really make a, a surge up the Big Ten standings and maybe even compete for a Big Ten title. And if he's as good as he looked last season, he's overpowering it. Like I think he's six foot eight, two hundred and eighty pounds, and just yeah, I mean, kind of ridiculous speed for that size. So 
a guy who could end up with, you know, 15 sacks or 16, 17, 18 sacks, something like that, whatever have you. He could be another guy, I think, that really pushes. But you're right. I mean, defensive players, if you're looking at, you know, Vegas odds and stuff like that, it's a sucker's bet to put your money on a defensive player because it's most likely not going to happen. It's only ever happened, what, one time in the history of the reward, and that was a guy in Charles Woodson who played both ways. So yeah. he wasn't even just a full-time defensive player. So no full-time defensive players actually ever won the Heisman Trophy. So we've come close. Um, yeah, like you said, in Dominican Sue, I probably would have voted for Dominican Sue in yeah. 2009 if I had a vote. Yeah. Um, so I, you got a guy like that. You get a guy like Tyron Matthew every now and then. You have these generational talents who really make some noise. And I think we're getting to the point in college football though where stuff like that gets noticed more. These mm-hmm. defensive players get voted a little bit more and a little bit more every year. So I think it's only a matter of time before it finally happens. Uh, I don't think it'll be this year, but if it is this year, those are the two guys who really came to my mind. I think those are fair choices for sure. Um, well, I think that kind of brings us to the point of this discussion where we actually sort of need to to lay our money on the line, if you will, and uh, look at who we think is realistically a, a good bet and who we personally pick to uh, win the Heisman, who we would imagine is going to win the Heisman leading up to the season. So you want to do the honors? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be really boring and I'm going to pick Tua Tungavailoa as the Heisman Trophy winner next year. He he finished runner up last year. Uh, Like I was just talking about a few minutes ago, the ridiculous talent he has at his disposal, that receiver to go along with a really loaded and talented offensive line. He should have all the time in the world to pick apart defenses. And that way, it was going to have too difficult of a schedule this year. They've got a couple big games that he can really show out on those stages and put up the kind of gaudy statistics that he put up for most of last season. And Alabama can run through and win the SEC again. I think he's probably a safe bet. Uh, him, him and Trevor Lawrence are the two, you know, favorites coming into the season. But I, my, my vote right now would be for Tua. And again, that's, that's a safe bet. I don't feel good about it. I like kind of going off the radar on some of these picks sometimes, but that's the guy who I would pick right now. You know, um, obviously I'm looking at a couple of picks that I could go to as a homer. Um, Jonathan Taylor at Wisconsin um, and Justin Herbert at Oregon. Both I think are, are, are fair, fair individuals to look at. Um, but honestly, if I had to pick anybody at this point, I think Lincoln Riley has some kind of voodoo going. I don't know what it is, but he has he has the magic for at least figuring out how to get a quarterback to the Heisman ceremony and, and holding old stiff arm. So I think it's going to be Jalen Hurts. I, I think it's crazy, but I think it's going to be a third transfer quarterback in the hands of Lincoln Riley just really taking it on. And I think what's interesting about that is the other two had several years with Riley to work with him. You know, it wasn't like they just immediately transferred and started. You know, they worked their way with the team. They had, um, you know, redshirt seasons where they had to sit out on the transfer rule. And they worked with the scout team. They really, you know, built up that rapport with Riley and I still think Riley is just that damn good of a coach. 
that he's going to have Hurts there in Manhattan, and I think he's going to walk away and just give the Sooners a third one in the road to the point where it's starting to look like they own this damn thing. So, <laughs> Right. I love that pick. I've been rooting for Jalen. The thing I think that helps with Jalen, he's got he's going to have the narrative behind him. You know, the kid who waited his turn, didn't leave when everybody – he also even and then went to Oklahoma and showed out and his one opportunity there. So he's definitely going to have that edge. So if Oklahoma's, you know, a playoff team for the third year in a row and he puts up strong statistics, I think he's he'll in the very least get the invite yeah. to the Heisman ceremony. And it'd be pretty interesting if you're looking at a, a Tua versus Jalen Heisman trophy race and then a potential Tua versus Jalen game in the play in the playoff semifinal or the national championship game imagine the storylines that derive from that oh i'm sure we have plenty of fun writing about it and i'm sure you all would have plenty of opinions about it as well out there um on that note i think that's uh that's about where we wanted to end this with with laying it actually out there who do we pick and uh you can let us know who you all think is going to win the heisman trophy on twitter Our handles will be at the end of this episode, so be sure to be back for the final segment. Stay tuned. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. Now we're going to be getting into something a little bit personal, um, a little bit more subjective, a little bit, uh, there is no one perfect answer to this. Um, looking at uniforms around college football, both classic uniforms, um, more modern uniforms, um, looking at trends around the game. And, uh, I think something I really wanted to start out with was looking at classic uniforms. You know, part of college football was just its its timeless nature. I think coming into the 150th anniversary, we're really thinking more about how how the sport spans across time. And a big part of that is the continuity with uniforms year over year, the school colors, you know, the school mascots, the school fight songs. All of that connects into the experience that brings both new students and alumni year over year and really builds up that that loyalty. And I think some schools do it really well in terms of keeping their classic looks. So who, you know, obviously I know you're a big fan of a school that has a classic look with Alabama. So I'm sure one of your favorites is going to be the Crimson Tide. Um, sure. Sure. Like I, I think everyone's favorite uniform is probably their school's uniform. It'd kind of be ridiculous for it not to be, I think. But I course. think it's an interesting thing. Like you you talk about tradition versus modern entity in, in terms of college football uniforms. And I think it all depends on your team and how you view that. Like for Alabama, they've always been about tradition, but I think it's interesting that people forget that Alabama's done some tweaks in their uniforms before in the past. If you go back to, I believe it was in the seventies, they wore white helmets at one time uh, for some games. And I know there's been a push for those to kind of come back and a, a big push on the other side for it not to, because you know, just the tradition aspect of everyone thinks this is how it should be. But I think the fact that Alabama wears the more traditional uniforms that they've kind of worn for the longest time has always made me appreciate that aspect of college football uniforms. And keeping with that, one of my favorite uniforms is Penn State's. I love Mm -hmm. their, 
I love that either they're home or away, whether they're wearing the navy blue tops and the white helmets, or they're wearing the white helmets and the white all the way down. Yeah. I just, I love that look. I especially love it when they have <coughs> the white outs in Happy Valley. I think it's just one of the, the cleanliness looks in college football that really don't, they really don't need anything else. It's just, you know, you see that, and it's one of the, one of the biggest, things that comes to mind when it comes to college football is, you know, Penn State's uniforms. I, you know, I think they're fantastic, and I think uh, uh, that's one of my favorites, personally, uh, of the classic looks, and I, I don't think they'll probably change at any point. I know that's uh, something you'll get to see up close and personal before too much longer, Zach, too. So, yeah. Uh, what about you in terms of the classic looks? Do you have a classic favorite? You know, that was one I definitely had on my short list of one I've just always, you know, like you said, it's one of those those looks that definitely you could see it, you could see a picture of a Penn State player in 2019 and just as easily put it into slightly more sepia tones and it would be completely believable as somebody from the 70s or somebody from the 50s. That I think that's really the beauty of that look. And, you know, some teams do definitely have tweaks, and I think Penn State has definitely had fewer tweaks than most. And I think that's what makes it such an iconic and timeless look. So, yeah, I really am going to be excited to see it more more closely. Um, and I think just having been a fan of a team like Wisconsin as well in my earliest stages of college football fanhood, just the Big Ten more generally, generally those are some iconic looks. I mean, as a kid, seeing something like Michigan's winged helmet and, you know, the maize and blue was just like, wow, okay. Um, you know, even Michigan State's sort of green popping, that that really deep green. Um, Ohio State, obviously, is an iconic look. Um, and even more recently, once Nebraska joined the fold, I think Nebraska, especially because I, I, I really started becoming intensely interested in the sport at a time when Nebraska was still really good in Tom Osborne's last seasons. And so, you know, seeing them contend for the national championship, seeing them on those old, like, you know, I forget even which network, maybe ABC with Keith Jackson or something, but recording those orange bowls and then playing or the Fiesta Bowl, I think one year. But, um, you know, those sorts of looks are, are, are obviously timeless. Um, a couple that sort of came out of, um, that I wanted to make sure to note before we, we moved on to other aspects of this as well. Um, uniforms like Princeton and Yale, I think especially when you get to see games like that, they just, you know, evoke that period of yesteryear. Part of that is obviously the fact that it's Ivy League football. And then also, you know, we've talked about historical black colleges and universities the past couple weeks. Um, maybe it's just seeing a G on the side of the helmet as somebody who grew up a Green Bay fan. But I instantly saw Grambling's uniforms and was like, yes, I get that as a kid. And it stuck, right. it stuck with me as one that just really, really, you know, sort of remains there in my psyche. Um, were there any others that, you know, obviously we talked about favorites, and it, if I had to say any single favorite, I'd, I'd honestly probably say that Grambling look. It's one, you know, like back when Eddie Robinson was coaching those teams, I remember, you know, his march to the, to the, to the coaching wins record 
you know, them covering that team over time. And it was, it was always fun getting to see those teams. And it was a look that just kind of stayed there for me. Yeah. I, I like Texas's uniforms too. Mm. I've always really appreciated uh, the burn orange, which is kind of crazy. A guy who, for me, Growing up, I was taught to hate everything orange, period. You know, whether it was yeah. Auburn or Tennessee, I've always really liked Texas's burnt orange look. I've always really, the Longhorn decal on the on the white helmet, I always thought this looked really cool. That always stood out to me. Uh, Miami's uniforms, too, the old traditional with the, with the U on the side of the helmet. I mean, that's pretty iconic when it comes to college football. Oh, for sure. You can't. You can't really mention um, traditional college football uniforms either without talking about USC's with the you know the red and gold and all that and how that looks and everything and that's kind of another one that you really think about when you're thinking about college football uniforms as well. So it's kind of interesting because in the last what ten or fifteen years, a lot of schools have been really pumping alternate uniforms and. Uh, it's kind of interesting that some of the more traditional looks still stick out so much in our minds. And I think they probably stick out in the minds of players and stuff too, uh, who are coming up just, you know, cause they can wear the uniforms that their favorite players wore yep. as well, you know? So I think there's still, uh, um, value in that, that maybe some people are missing on. Cause you know, you have the schools who pump out an alternate uniform every week. And I think it works for some, and obviously it all started in your neck of the woods, Zach with Oregon really, every week coming out in a different uniform. And that really, I think, helped raise Oregon's profile in terms of a recruiting standpoint because it put them on the map. They didn't have the tradition of a USC or, or an Alabama or a Penn State or anything like that. So a way to kind of make your mark was to, you know, change up your uniforms and stuff like that coming out with the, uh, you know, either the all whites with the, with the silver helmets or the green, the yellow, the black, all the different colors that Oregon kind of employs. And they look cool as hell. I mean, they really do. Someone who comes from a traditional fan base, I'm kind of envious to be able to follow a team also that, you know, wear something new and exciting every week, whether it's the Webfoot mascot on the actual helmet some weeks or what have you. They come out with something pretty different all the time. And I really haven't seen one I dislike. I think the, the ones they wore last year where the numbers were, like, bigger than the jerseys might have not had as good of an impression on me. But otherwise, I've really always liked what Oregon does uh, if we're moving towards the more modern uniform look. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think just kind of wrapping up those those classic looks, it, the, the beauty of it is generationally you can see the same thing over and over and over again. Oregon's uniforms in... 06 look nothing like the ones that they wore in 2016 look nothing like the ones they wore last year. Um, You know, unless they were wearing a throwback uniform, in which case they were wearing some really weird ones that were hearkening back to their first Rose Bowl appearances in the 19-teens. So, back when they still wore navy. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think Oregon though, they've really found that, that sort of niche for themselves. They've really carved out that space where they, um, you know, they, they are the, the vanguard of innovation in terms of uniforms in the sport and making it work as a marketing tool. But I think some other schools are, are definitely doing it or at least emulating some aspects of it really well. 
Um, one that comes immediately to mind is Marilyn, especially pushing the barrier around adopting various aspects of the state flag and everything. I think it's really just interesting how um, working with Under Armour in sort of that, you know, their one real test case and how do we bring um, sort of this innovation, this Oregon-style innovation to our own local campus, you know, having an alumnus there obviously helps with that sort of drive, um, as it did with Oregon and Phil Knight. <laughs> so I think they're doing it on an interesting level. I think also one that also sticks out to me is just the different um, alternate uniforms, the different throwbacks and everything else that um, Army and Navy wear every year they meet up in Philadelphia. Um, when I when I really think about some of my favorites, as much as I am not a military guy, and I've talked about this with plenty of military people, um, it's really interesting because I see those guys still getting an education and I still see them playing football and I, you know, I still root for the little guys and army and Navy are the little guys of college football at this point. So, and you know, we even have one, you know, an alumnus of the football program itself at Navy writing on our staff here in Gavin Jernigan. And I, you know, I've gotten to sit with him in person and, you know, he, he gets where I'm coming from, but their football is awesome itself, and I, I, I think those uniforms are just always really fun. They bring something different to the table. They bring um, a good mix of um, honoring dis different aspects of not just their football traditions, but the wider traditions of both of those academies. So I think those were ones that stuck out to me as well. I completely agree. I think the service academies, uh, even the Air Force, have had some pretty interesting alternate uniforms over the last few years. Um, but definitely Army and Navy, it's always kind of interesting leading up to the Army-Navy game. And, you know, they get their own their own week on the college football calendar where it's really just them and getting to – it's kind of exciting leading up to that game. It's always one of my favorite games to watch every year anyway, but it's always exciting leading up to it to see which uniforms are going to be wearing when, you know, Navy throws the – the anchor on the helmet or whatever army wears their, you know, all whites or all blacks or whatever. I, they're fantastic. They look really, really clean. It's kind of, it's awesome when you think of kind of traditional college football teams like army and Navy, you know, some really traditional powers back even in the, yep. you know, the uh, 1920s between 1920s, 1940s, whatever. Uh, and how they've kind of, modernized everything with their uniforms. I think they're great, and I think that's a really good one to bring up. That's one I was definitely going to mention, so I'm glad you did. Uh, another one that I think doesn't really get mentioned is Texas Tech. I think Texas mm -hmm. Tech does some really cool stuff with their uniforms, and they're blessed with having really good colors. You know, they got red, black, and white, and there's a lot of cool combinations they can do with those, um, especially when they include the Matador mascot on their helmets and stuff. I think those look really, really good. Uh, they're all reds with a white helmet, I think, looks really, really clean. Uh, even just their normal logo with the double T's, I think, looks really good as well. So Texas Tech's one of my personal favorites as well. They have a, a lot of different combinations they go with that I think looks pretty good every week. And I also have always appreciated Georgia Tech's, like, honeycomb look on yeah. their helmet. I think those are really neat and really creative. Um, and I think that's probably something you'll see even more of with a kind of forward 
thinking guy like Jeff Collins trying to energize a fan base, I wouldn't be surprised to see some more kind of alternate looks for, for Georgia Tech in the future. Yeah, I think those are both really good choices as well. Um, a couple others that stick out to me as just fairly innovative or at least sort of pushing the boundaries um, are teams I see in the Mountain West fairly regularly. I like what Boise State does with their uniforms, um, especially when they're able to game the system against their Smurf turf. Um, you know, the Mountain West had to put in a specific regulation saying they couldn't wear the all-blues when they were playing at home in conference games. Um, so you really only see them bust them out at home when they're playing a non-conference opponent. But it's always sort of a riot when they do because it, it does allow them an advantage you uh, wouldn't normally expect. And there's right. really just there's a way of being able to match it up with turf, with field turf like that, that there just isn't with natural grass. So I think that's always pretty hilarious. But even, you know, they're different iconic white, you know, white, orange, and blue looks that they've had, for instance, you know, that Fiesta Bowl win against Oklahoma, just, you know, the white tops and the blue helmets, and, you know, just really, you know, they've had enough moments, and each one of them has been in a slightly different uniform, so I think they've been sort of subtly innovative in that regard. And then I also like um, San Diego State's recent um, spin toward putting the Aztec calendar on their uniforms, I think, has just been really beautiful. It's been just really well done, just really cleanly done. I think it speaks to um, that tradition. And I think I'm, you know, I'm always hesitant to support anything that, um, you know, has any connotation that might speak ill toward indigenous rights and, and what they might say about this. But you really haven't heard anything, you know, ill-spoken about what they've done with it. And I think it's because they did it as well as they did in just... It's tasteful, right? Yeah, Yeah. incorporating it in a really, like, honoring way. So those were the other two that really I just wanted to make sure I mentioned because they're, I I think, both in their own way doing things really well. You bring up San Diego State, maybe think of Arizona State's too, when they incorporate the pitchfork logo on their helmets and the different kind of color schemes they use with the red and the gold and the white and even the blacks and stuff like that. I think that looked really good. They had several last year where I was watching and I was like, man, those look really, really cool. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, especially with a coach like Herm Edwards, who you think of as a more traditional kind of guy, still going forward with that kind of stuff, he seems to get it in terms of that that stuff so yeah you I wasn't going to mention them but I just popped into my head while you were talking about San Diego State well and there's somebody who makes the NFL's color rush um initiative sort of put to shame I think Arizona State is a team that blends their their traditional colors in a way that NFL teams wish they could with the way they have in that um so yeah I think that's a great choice um as well and I'm glad you mentioned them also Um, And then the last thing we were going to talk about during this was just looking at some recent throwback uniforms. So for schools especially, you know, even ones that have timeless looks, you know, um, still have throwbacks because, as you said, you know, a team like Alabama has had tweaks over the years. A team like Ohio State has had tweaks over the years. 
Um, it's a bit harder for a Penn State to have a throwback uniform, given what Paterno kept just sort of locked in that, you know, just sort of mirrored what Rip Angle did with that program before him. So those uniforms haven't changed much since the 50s. But um, what are some throwbacks that you've really enjoyed in recent years? Well, there's one throwback that really comes to mind that shouldn't even be a throwback. It should just be their freaking uniforms, and it's Pitt. Yes. Like Pitt's, Pitt's blue and golds that they wear, they wore several times last season. I hope that they're moving back towards that just flat out being their regular uniforms because the ones that they wore in recent years were just the all navies just paled in comparison. Like the, the blue and golds just pop so much. They look so good as a combination. Like just go back and look at them in the ACC title game last year against Clemson when they wore them and they just look fantastic. Those should be there 100% all the time uniforms. You don't need any alternates. Those look really, really clean I'm not really sure why they went away from wearing those for the amount of time they did. So that's the ones that really popped to me to start with was Pitt. Oh, yeah, definitely. I That was one that was on my list, and I'm right there with you. Like, you're wearing that darker navy. All that's reminiscent of is losing to Utah in, what was it, the <laughs> Fiesta Bowl that they played? Um, yes. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where... Why why live up that tradition when you have a tradition that you won a national title in? Like, look at that uniform and wear that. I was right there with you. Um, another one that stuck out to me, I really love the LSU, um, you know, beginning back in 2016, brought in the yellow tops um, for, for their yellow jerseys. I think, you know, speaking back to those 1940s and 1950s teams, um, sort of that post-war period at LSU. It's a it's a great alternate look for them, and, and uh, it's kind of a fun history there with that in terms of you know going back to that earlier post-war era. Um, another one that really jumped out at me, I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned was Oklahoma State's done a nice job. Um, I really liked back last year when they had the the twentieth anniversary or the um, yeah, the 20th anniversary of Barry Sanders' Heisman Trophy and wearing those those uniforms, yes. I thought that was absolutely well done. Um, Texas A&M, uh, this was like five years ago or so, they did throwbacks to the 1939 team where they had what looked like some interesting helmet, you know, pattern on it. I, you know, I don't know if it was supposed to look like a leather helmet or whatnot, but those I think were really nice, and I think our uh, old editor here, Matthew Bartlett, probably would agree with that as well. Um, and then um, last year, the Cal did the Joe Roth Memorial jerseys, where they were just sort of that more powder blue, and I thought, or that lighter blue, and I thought those were just really nice. I think it was a really fitting, fitting tribute um, to to a young man who died really young. Um, and was a really key part of those those teams in the Cal history. Um, so they you know they did that really well, I think. Right. Yeah, I I like those as well. Um, Ohio State's their throwbacks you talked about uh, beforehand. Those have always looked really good. They've had several kind of throwback uniforms they've worn in recent years, and they. They've got the nice colors. I think Notre Dame did the uh, the Shamrock series, yeah. which was kind of rooted back from their you know 1960s 
uh, era uniforms, and those look pretty cool. Uh, Ole Miss has kind of gone back to wearing the the red tops with the light blue helmets and everything, and those those pop off and get fans excited. They pulled some pretty big upsets while wearing those jerseys, so it's really hard to to harp on that uh, for sure. Um, but those are two more that really popped in my head as well. I like the. Do you remember the Hawaii? Rainbow Warriors yes. jerseys they that, were a couple of years ago, this too. Was that, like tw- that kind of popped Yeah, that was like 2012 too. or 2013. Were, were you talking the rainbow jerseys or the... Yeah. I yeah, liked... Play, I think it was on the shoulders. They yeah. had the rainbow on the shoulders, the plain green jerseys, and then yep. the white helmets, I believe it was. Yeah. I like those. those. Really cool. And then I also liked in 2013 when Hawaii had like the, the rainbow stripe down the side of the pants. Yes. I, I think yeah, I like that was just like harkening back to the Rainbow Warriors and really bringing back that tradition. It's like embrace it, Hawaii. You're Hawaii. Like, why would you right. not want to own that? You are Rainbow Warriors. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely I'm glad you got in Hawaii there because if you had not mentioned it, I was going to. I really love what that team has done especially in, in reinvoking the, the rainbow tradition to their uniforms in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. They should probably, that's another team that should just go back to wearing their, their normal uniforms. And you also got BYU's alternate uniforms that look pretty cool too. The light blue uh, look more so than the, the more black and white look they've gone for in recent years. And that's another team that, Hey, why not go back to that? Because this is back when your team was actually competitive on a national stage. Oh you know, yeah, BYU you won a national championship wearing those jerseys, just like Pitt won a national won national championships wearing the their throwback jerseys. So there's several throwbacks that just need to be the non the net main uniforms. Hawaii, Pitt, BYU, several teams like that need to wear them full time. I agree. Um, I think that's that really speaks as well. Teams can get locked in this idea of innovation being a great thing, but sometimes we mess with something that's already really good. Right. And so I think, you know, classic teams, there could be a tweak here or there. And like you said, even a team like Alabama or a USC, you know, with the, the different sizes of Tommy Trojan and everything on the side of the helmet and how that's played out over the years. You've seen minuscule tweaks, but I, I think in general you keep a, a classic look and you play from there, and it, it's really hard to, to go too wrong with it. Um, right. I think that's really the risk when you try to play in a territory like Oregon does, is you have, uh, you, know, you have an opportunity to produce some really cool, really trend-setting uniforms, something that's just going to pop and, and stick in a recruit's, you know, a 17-year-old's mind in a way that they're like, yeah, I want to go there. I want to wear something cool right. like that. What, are, what cool thing are they going to produce for me when I get there? But really, I think part of what, you know, what was around that is there are really only a few schools who are doing that in a way that, comes anywhere close to what Oregon does with it. And I think if you're not doing it at that level, it's really kind of, it, it, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to continue, you know, spending that much money on uniforms each year. Like it, it, it's, you really have to have a solid benefactor to be spending that much money on uniforms each year, especially in the context right. of everything we always like to talk about in college football in terms of where revenues are going. So, um, 
as much fun as it is for us as fans, and I know we both have our favorites that we've looked at over the years and have really just kind of loved, um, I, I think it's important to always keep that in mind as well. This is revenue that, that that's going specifically toward that because it's not going elsewhere. Right. One one more before we before we're done. I forgot to mention was two lanes. The uniforms oh. they started wearing last year with the with the actual oh. wave and the eyes and stuff on the helmet and the grip. That's fantastic. Oh like, my. I love that uniform. Thank I you. can't believe I almost let that slip in my head before this podcast was over because that one that might have been my favorite uniform in college football last season. If I'm being honest. Thank you. I'm I'm so glad you brought it up because I did have it jotted down here and that was such a it was such a bold move and it was such a it, it popped on the screen absolutely beautiful oh, yeah. i hope that never goes away um and at the same time you know new trends get set down the road and if it does go away hopefully they're bringing it back 30 years in a throwback uniform that everybody's like why did this ever go away <laughs> <laughs> right absolutely and i'm sure we'll see that across the country with several of these yeah Oregon's going to have some 20 years down the road where they go just there. It becomes derivative and they're just going back and revisiting looks with slightly different colors or something. <laughs> Get out the Pantone wheel. But anyway, right. um, you know, as much fun as it is to talk uh, graphic design in that way. Um, I, I, I think that really touches on, on uniforms that, you know, both, stand the test of time in uniforms that don't last more than a game. They become sort of a one-off fashion statement. And I think both have been equally valid and interesting paths to take in recent years and have worked for different teams in different ways. Um, that's, you know, just the last takeaway I want to leave out there. Um, any final words you want to throw out here, John? I think that's really it. I think it's, the uniform argument's been a thing across college football for a number of years now where it's kind of tradition versus modern and everything. And I think find what works for your school and stick with it. Don't try to be who you're not. It works for Oregon to throw out all the different uniforms. doesn't necessarily work for everybody to go that route. It's okay to go with more traditional look. It's okay to go with an updated look. You know, it's just also listen to the fans because they're the ones who probably know best when it comes to stuff. If the uniforms are, you know, getting the right kind of attention, that's great. If not, then, you know, maybe you made a mistake and be willing to, to change pretty quickly. But I, I think I think there's no – I don't have a preference when it comes to traditional versus modern in terms of uniforms. I think they're both great in their own way, um, which is kind of what I wish everybody could get to with a lot of topics, not just across college football, that, hey, it's okay for there to be two different kind of viewpoints on this and let's just, you know, agree to disagree or kind of view that both have their – um, good parts, and then both have their, you know, limitations as well. So, uh, and I it, think, go ahead. Oh yeah, and uh, sorry to interrupt, but I think it also speaks to the fact that it, there's not even just two ways of doing it because a team like Ohio State or a team like Oklahoma, you know, they're doing throwback uniforms. They're doing something that right. really speaks to a, a guest or year. Michigan has done things like that in recent years. You know, these, these powerhouse teams, even the ones that we really think of as a locked-in sort of look, um, they, they also um, don't just have updates, but they also look back at 
past trends because there are past trends to look at. As much as we think of a look as timeless, um, there had to be a point where it was finally locked in as this is what we do as a school. And um, you look all across college football and there is a period before that time when it's locked in, when schools are really finding their way around playing the sport, especially in the 1890s where there's just a range of colors. That's the whole reason that Oregon can have throwback jerseys that look like, you know, that it's kind of like Green Bay, the Green Bay Packers having the old Acme Packers jerseys with the, the navy baby tops. Oregon's doing the exact same thing because there was still feeling out your way around what your colors were at that time. It wasn't something that really became significant until you were playing far and wide enough that you had to really worry about it. So, Right. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good point, too. And those Acme Packers jerseys could just never come back, and I'd be okay with it. Um. Yeah, as a Packers fan, I have, and as a historian, I have mixed feelings about it. So, um, the fan of me, yeah, wants to light a torch, and the historian in me says, it is what it was. So, um, but yeah, I think on that note, that kind of wraps up our uh, talk on jerseys. Once we start diving into NFL jerseys, we've probably told you everything we're going to talk about with college jerseys. <laughs> So thanks again, John. It's always great talking to you. We have lucky number 13 coming at you all next Wednesday. Um, and we'll continue our discussion around some of these more general topics like the Heisman talk um, as we lead up to, to previewing the college football season um, with a look at some smaller conferences on July 3rd. So uh, stick with us through the rest of June and we'll begin looking at conferences beginning in July. Thanks, everybody, for continuing to listen. Have a great week.